Thank you for listening to the Writers Guild of Alberta podcasts. The following episode was recorded in 2020 as part of the WGA's online reading series, sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. The audio quality may differ from recording to recording. We want to thank the authors and hosts for their permission to share these audio-only episodes with you, and thank the Rosé Foundation again for their generous support. So, hello, thank you everybody, and welcome, who everyone who is joining us. I'm just going to volume on my um, uh, anyone who's joining us uh, for the inaugural, the kickoff event for the WJ Online Reading Series. Um, over the next coming weeks and months, we're going to be hosting a series of these events for WJ members who have had their book launches, readings, events of those kind uh, canceled because of the pandemic. Um, the whole series is uh, funded by the Rosé Foundation. We got a grant from them, so thank you so much, the Rosé Foundation, for funding this. Um, my name is Ellen Kartz. I'm the Communications Coordinator with the Writers Guild of Alberta, and it's my pleasure to host Amy LeBlanc. Amy LeBlanc is an MA student in English Literature and Creative Writing at the University of Calgary and nonfiction editor at Filling Station Magazine. Amy's debut poetry collection, I Know Something You Don't Know, was published with Gordon Hill Press in March of this year. Her novella, Unlocking, will be published by University of Calgary Press in their Brave and Brilliant series in 2021. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Room, Prism International, and the Literary Review of Canada, among others. She's a recipient, most recently, of the 2020 Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Emerging Artist Award. So welcome, Amy, and I'm going to turn it over to you, and you're going to read from your book. Okay, thank you, Ellen, for the introduction, and thank you so much to the Writers Guild for having me tonight. Uh, and thank you to the Rosa Foundation as well for the funding to make programs like this happen. Uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be reading here tonight, because um, like Ellen said, um, a lot of us with spring titles had our book launches canceled and readings. Um, so really thankful to have the opportunity to still get to share some work and to go through the really exciting stages of um, launching a book, even if it's not quite the way that I expected. Um, so this is uh, my debut poetry collection, I Know Something You Don't Know. Um, and I'm going to be reading a few poems from the collection and then two poems from um, outside of the collection. All of the poems that I'm going to read tonight um, are from a section uh, in the collection called Brief Reincarnations. Um, and they're all poems about um, famous and infamous women. Um, some of them fictional, some of them real life, some of them a combination of both. Um, so I'll give a little bit of context for the pieces as we go through. Um, so the first one I'm going to read is called The Storied Life of Grace Poole. Um, and Grace Poole is a very minor character in Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre. Um, I think I was trying to get as niche as possible um, in writing this piece. Um, and I focused in on her and her relationship with one of the other characters. So The Storied Life of Grace Poole. She dangled striated scarves from the window, rattling her head as I held her waist. He told me to keep her quiet, to keep her safe, compliant, the significant paranoia that she might be vaulting, purging, dancing like red fiber from rafters. She tells me my hair reminds her of a fox. My brush is a signal to enemy lines, her lips departing on a stolen glass of honey-soaked wine. She and I watch the tree as it splits and succumbs in the orchard, a split where the tree was licked with a voltage-charged tongue. She says that it will never be the same again. 
We are both behind the lock and chain, but I can abscond to the halls and gates. She lingers behind the latch, her fingers entwined in a lock of my red hair. We are curious bedfellows with sweetness on our thighs, the topographical curving of bones and banks. She is hers and I am mine. I will never ask for more than the chill of her hands that cool me until I drown. She won't jump with someone to hush the light. This next poem is called Sickle um, and it's about Bridget Cleary. Uh, she was murdered by her husband in Ireland in 1895. She was a changeling. Um, so he thought that fairies had taken her and had put someone else in her place. And he thought that if he killed her, the real Bridget would come back. Um, so this poem is quite short. Sickle. When Bridget Cleary sits on foxgloves, her fingertips flamed and the sticks in her belly burned. With the pail beneath her and the sickle above, she vomited plumes while the clocks stopped at mid-afternoon. With the last cup of cow's milk in her stomach, she covered the mirror with soot from her hands and rolled her eyes inward. This next poem is called Girls Reading in Red Coats. Um, and I wrote this poem for Paula Jean Weldon, um, who was the inspiration behind Shirley Jackson's novel, Hang the Man, uh, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, she disappeared in 1946 from her college campus at Bennington College in Vermont. Um, and there's this whole modern mythology about her. Um, she was never found. And there's this modern story about people take that hiking trail and they see someone walking in a red coat, but they can never find her. So there's a bit of a Red Riding Hood, um, a lot of Anne Sexton influences in this poem. Um, so it's called Girls Reading in Red Coat. She tucked a book into the folds of her red coat when she left her room. She felt the spine against her ribs and the edges of paper wrapping around her skin. A pair of legs in a closet tub, a little berth with a belly full of rocks. The book would last her the better part of three days. She buttoned a scarf to her throat and picked bloodroot and ate carrots, nine almonds a day with a glass of water. She expected to wander and to find an altar in the trees, in the wasps, in moist roots, in the mud that caught her heels. She freed insects from jars that never held water and heard a rattling sound in her bone marrow, in her ears, eyes, hands, and teeth. They searched and searched, but she stayed hidden at her altar or the meeting points of her own sternum and her spine. She read her book in her red buttoned coat. She thought about ivy and garden walls, moths that bleed cyanide, women in turtlenecks, wine and cake and uncomfortable pantyhose. Her coat, red as pomegranate seeds, trailed behind her, moist and well watered. Her exposed belly could cut open letters and blood root was the bedrock of her spine. Her book had moistened in the rain, so she made a herbarium and slept in the vines. Stripping the moths of their poison, she dripped them over a porringer and encouraged them to dry. When her fingernails rooted to the paper, she swallowed herself whole. Uh, the next poem I'll read is called Fragments. Um, and it was a poem that I wrote when I was reading a lot of poetry by Sappho. The nectar drains from her hips, 
like an apple imprisoned on the highest branch. She's a collector of scarlet stains and fragments of skin, skinned knees, skinned elbows, skinned legs that begin to swell with fur for the weeks of winter. They expected her to purr, to break a membrane made from call on the body of a boy who built her to bend against wooden parts and alcohol. The spring water wells and overflows with seeds. She bleeds and bleeds and bleeds, red as apple skin against the white linen of her tunic. When the bleeding ends, she turns to the boy with his wooden limbs and transforms him into fruit, crisps and tarts for the birds and the boys to pack in the sun. Uh, this next poem has a very long title. It's called The Brief Reincarnation of Mary Webster on the Amtrak from Boston to New York. Um, Mary Webster, um, also known as Half-Hanged Mary, uh, was executed during the Salem Witch Trials, um, but supposedly survived her execution um, and climbed down from the tree and continued living her life. Um, so this is me picturing Mary Webster just riding a train um, years and years later in a very brief reincarnation. Leaves clung to the woman's shoe and hair hung from the sides of her face. It had rained for a week. She'd eaten a biscuit, then fell asleep on the train to the hissing until the low whistle sang. The man across the aisle was watching her sleep. He pretended to read his newspaper, licked his inked fingers, smudged editorial, blurred black and white photos with spit on his hands. She dreamt about being a cat, a fox, an apple hanging from a tree. She opened her eyes and found the man had moved to sit beside her. He'd been so silent, she'd hardly felt the air move. He held out a cigarette, which she placed between her lips. When his hands shifted closer to her hip, she put her bag between them and asked if he had ever played Scrabble. He played carts, she played cruel, he played slick, she played sway, he played cyan, she won by adding an I and a D and an E. She sent him back to his side of the train with a biscuit wrapped in a napkin and a half-drunk mug of tea. She returned to her dream of the hanging fruit, felt her small body sway in the breeze until the train arrived in New York. Um, so this next poem is called Flannery. Uh, it's written for Flannery O'Connor, um, who is one of my favorite authors. Uh, and it was inspired by her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. The chronicity of her temper could curl hair and color it silver white. She didn't want to go to Florida, but the valise was prepared and could not be unpacked. The shirts were tucked and folded in fours, carried over the hill until the aches and the tissues tore in the shape of a butterfly. She carried them to the side of the grove with tarragon, daisies, and lace. They were told to keep quiet, to approach the car and stay put. She sucked on an olive pit that scraped her teeth until they were uprooted. She knew the advice they were given was not sound, but they stayed long enough for grass to grow over their heads. Um, so the next poem I'll read is called Muska. Uh, and this is a poem that kind of topical right now, COVID, um, for Beatrice White, um, who's a little known Canadian figure. Um, she was um, a teenager in 1912 
um, at the height of um, the typhoid epidemic. Uh, and the government in Toronto decided to have a swat the fly contest um, under the assumption that flies were spreading typhoid. Um, so whoever could kill the most flies would win a cash prize. Um, so Beatrice White managed to kill 543,630 flies. Um, and she did win $50 um, with her prize money, but her father spent it all. Um, so I felt that she deserved a poem. She deserved something. So this one is called Muska. Flies bathe in milk. They skate on butter, carry disease to babies, fill graveyards with bulk. We set traps in the backyard, our laneway and empty lot where butchered meat strains through a cloth into a black vat, a clot of blood in the crook of an uncooked flank. We place liver below the traps. She'll harvest the bodies in her grandmother's button box and begin again. Her black boots crush melons and part meat from bones. We keep the dread afflictions from spreading by singing while we swat. We save our earnings for music lessons. We buzz around the yard in our white dresses as our subjects kneel in chalky powder beneath the cloth, legs curled inward and belly up. Uh, and the last poem I'll read from the collection is called Dear Emily. Um, and it's basically um, a giant love letter to Emily Bronte. Dear Emily, we share fingers mixed with sourdough from six years blood in our glass house. The apiary is not far off. Your matted hands and knotted fur can take us there, across the winds and through the moors. Emily, you cut a chill when he died. You broke the spell by whittling his coat. He made you a pen from bitters and cloves for drawing tonsils by the picture window. You see sights and smells and smoke and bluebells. Emily, you overheat, and so do I, the feverish concubines infecting our nests, a pollen basket between the two of us. We slide our hands over combs and brushes, but you cannot get the scent of chalk to leave you tonight. Dear Emily, your cheeks blossom gray and red in time with the marginal toll of the bell. You lift your rib cage on runny legs, feed the dogs, and close your eyes. And I have two more poems that I will read. Um, and they're ones that I've written recently. So they're not published, they're not a collection. Um, they're just two poems that I've been playing with a little bit. Um, so the first poem is called A Small Painting of a Single Eye. Um, and this poem, uh, I recently discovered this really fascinating practice in Victorian times um, where a woman would have uh, a small portrait of her eyeball commissioned. Um, and she could give it to um, the person that she was in love with um, so that he would never forget um, what her eye looked like. And some people had them on necklaces, some people had them on rings. Um, and I just thought this was too weird and lovely not to write a poem about. So this one is called A Small Painting of a Single Eye. When we began, I gave you strands of my hair glutted with dandruff and mildew and tied with twine. You let them unravel in your coat pocket. You check the time and are reminded of me, the fur in the crown, bow, and latch release. Dial up, dial down. Now, I give you a small painting of a single eye, a likeness of my arch, framing lashes and rose gold, a pearl for you to wear in a locket 
on a chain around your neck, like braided thread, a little death, a morning cloak. Wear my eye on your body like a pallbearer. When I am gone, consult a manual to mourn me correctly. And then the very last poem I will read is called A Ghost in a Field Where No One Goes. We take the scarecrow from his perch, plaid jacket and a Geiger counter as a boutonniere. I smell pined and ice propyl alcohol with the jacket in my hands. Fibers between my fingers, bits of straw float up my nose. He was posed against two poles, a lopsided crucifix, a ghost in a field where no one goes. His eyes, buttons, his mouth, twine. We grab him from behind and feel dried grass in the body cavity. A nail driven through the sole of the foot for drainage in rainy season. Mud through a rubber boot. I unbutton the shirt like I might unbutton my lover's shirt. And in my hands, I hold a heart made of red cedar. A moth sleeps in a carved aorta and larvae eat at the bark. Thank you so much for listening. All the poems that I have to read. Okay, wow. Hey, just needed to sort of the technology. Thank you so much, Amy. That was wonderful. And amazing to hear you read poems that I've been like reading in my head a certain way. We were talking about this earlier, how there's always just a little bit of difference between how you how you read a poem off the page in your own head and how the poet reads their own work. The pauses are different. It's true, and I've had that at so many readings where I've gone to a reading with a poet that I've, I've only read their work and I've never heard their voice. Right. Um, and sometimes they start reading and it's just, it totally takes me off guard and by surprise because it's just not at all what I expected. Um, right. Other times are the opposite, where it's exactly what you expected. It's just the poem is written so perfectly that you know how it's going to sound. Um, but yeah, it's always an interesting experience to listen to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, when I was, when I was reading through this book, what, what struck me was I ended up reading it three times. And the reason I ended up reading it three times is because the, the first time I read it, I was really just getting used to the world of the book. There's so many unique things that are happening in it. You know, the, the, the play with imagery, that, that blend of fact and fairy tale, the historical narrative, and then the folk tales that you got interwoven in there, the different styles and genres and voices and stuff. And then the second time I read it, I'm like, well, who are these people? So I looked up some of the, the names behind the poems that you're reading today and found a little bit more about them. And then the third time I read it, it was sort of putting all those things together and getting it, being able to just settle into the poetics and the language. And you know, I found a quote on Goodreads that was, I'm going to read it to you. It said, while I've read this cover to cover, I can hardly claim to be finished with it. And I feel that with this book, like it's the kind of book that you, every time you read it, it's a different experience. And I'm curious, how did you, how did you create that? Or how did this book come to be like that? Um, so first off, I'm so excited just to hear that this is a book that you would first off read again, <laughs> one that warrants a second reading. Um, for me, this collection came to be, it started first off as um, a chapbook that I published with Anne Sturzer Press in 2018, um, which is called Lady Bird, Lady Bird. Um, and that was where I first started kind of dabbling with these like nursery rhymes and fairy tale themes. Um, and I loved working on that so much that I realized that I wanted to extend this out and play with it some more. Um, so this collection is basically the culmination of three years um, of writing about fairy tales and folklore, 
um, oh. and different people and listening to podcasts and reading books and just kind of learning all these neat facts and histories that I didn't know before and then trying to translate them into poetry. So I think fundamentally that first chapbook was kind of the frame that the rest of this collection kind of fleshed out as I worked through it. Um, I put the collection together for the first time at the BAMP Center last year because I was there for the week-long Emerging Writers Intensive. Um, and it hadn't entirely occurred to me to put together a full-length collection yet. I knew I was working on something thematically where these pieces were linked, but I didn't know yet that I wanted to put them all into a book and try and accomplish that. Um, so I uh, sat down one morning. It was, it was very early in the morning. I couldn't sleep because all the poets had stayed up to watch The Shining the night before. <laughs> I was too scared. <laughs> Um, it was a good time to start. Yeah, it's a good time to start putting together a full-length collection. Um, and it went through a lot of different iterations before it ended up at its final, final product. And a lot of those iterations were my my publisher and my editors, um, who could look at it and say, "Okay, we see these seven distinct sections." Um, okay. And I couldn't see that when I was writing it. I saw wow. one big section, and they saw it in smaller narratives, start to finish. So that the collaborative process is huge and helpful. That's interesting because I, I was curious about how the those different sections sort of interact with each other. How you see them as communicating, but if they're part of, of just what was a, a single manuscript, it kind of makes sense then that somebody else could look yeah. in and pull the sections out, right? That's interesting. Yeah, and and what kind of happened? What my publisher had suggested was um, kind of these these subtitles and these sections. Um, which I hadn't been able to see. I was too invested in the project as a whole to be able to see small sections. And then the first section in the book is kind of a sampler of what's to come. Like it's, it's a few from each little section um, kind of put together. So the first section I suppose is kind of like a mini version of the whole collection. Um, oh, so if you only had time to read a few poems, just read the first section. Um, but yeah, I couldn't see those sections myself um, until um, Shane Nielsen, my editor, just kind of said, well, there's these seven very distinct sections. And as soon as he said it, it was obvious. Right. Um, but I couldn't get into that myself. I just didn't see it. That's really interesting because I think the fact that the sections exist and they're, they're titled, and you can kind of see an arc through the, the, the whole book of those sections. And they feel intentional, that the way that they're set up, the little title cards in the beginning of each section. Like, it, it really feels cohesive, right? So that yeah, makes sense. And it, it's far more cohesive than it would have been had we not sectioned it. Um, and I think this is one of those times, this is my first collection. So this is one of those times as, as a debut author where it's just really relying on the knowledge of other people that have done full-length collections. Because I put poems together in an order that made sense to me. Um, and then it took someone with a lot more experience than me to say, here's how this could be so much better. Um, here's how we could lay these out to get this narrative arc that has a bigger impact. Okay. Huh. Do you have a Do you have a favorite poem out of this? Oh, I, oh, that's really hard. <laughs> I think my favorite poem in the collection might be the title poem, actually. Yeah. Um, which I didn't read today. Um, but it's a poem, and it was originally wasn't the title poem. It was originally called the White Plague because um, it was about tuberculosis um, and then I knew what I wanted to call the collection and I knew what I wanted that I wanted one of the poems to have that title 
And this one just makes so much sense that I realized that was the title it should have had the whole time. Um, so I think that's probably my favorite poem from the collection. It's short, it's the same kind of nursery rhyme creepiness. Um, and I've always just found tuberculosis, the whole cultural bit, really interesting. Um, I love everything from Victorian times. So for me, that was kind of just a fun one to write. Even if it's about a deadly disease, it was still fun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I just lost all my questions. All came in my head. Um, so, what was the what was the publication process like? You said this is your first book, and you had people who had worked on other books before. So, what was this like for you as a first time full length book author? It was a really exciting process, start to finish. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, it was, and like there were definitely moments where it was really challenging mm. and moments where it felt like a bigger project than um, I was capable of doing. I don't know, like I hadn't pictured myself publishing a full length collection of poetry mm. for a very long time. I didn't picture doing it while I was still a student. Um, that being said, I kind of hoped I would. Like I did put it together and I did send it out to publishers. Mm. Um, Gordon Hill Press got back to me in six days um, after I sent it, which I know was a very unusually short turnaround time. Um, I got a phone call that said that they were interested, which is so exciting. Um, and then it was about a year later that the book was published. Um, the editorial process was really, really valuable for me. And I learned so much from Jay Nielsen and Jeremy Luke Hill um, at Gordon Hill Press. I learned so many lessons from them that I will take into my next book. Um, and I'm really thankful for them for um, kind of putting their time and effort into a debut author that had no idea what she was doing. <laughs> um, this this book is so much better because of their input. Um, and something that I absolutely love, I'm, I'm in love with the cover. Um, this is Jeremy doing with the cover and this is just so much better than anything I had imagined um, in my head of what a cover might look like. Um, he sent me this and kind of said, what do you think of something like this? And I said, that, that's what I want. <laughs> Not something like that. I want that exact cover. Um, so yeah, the whole publication process was really positive. Um, definitely a bit of a bummer um, having your book come out right around time that COVID hits. Sure. Um, so that was, that was kind of the downside to the whole publication process is it's all this lead up. Um, in a lot of ways, I have this, weird relationship with the book where I feel like it still isn't published um, just because it didn't have that launch that I'd envisioned um, but the launches will happen I know a lot of people are in the same situation as me um, and I've had really incredible support um, even though the launches had to be cancelled and even maybe because of that as well a lot of people have reached out for a copy and um, doing reviews and everything so it's really it's been a wonderful experience publishing it um, yeah, I don't think I could have asked for a better um, publishing house to work with. Um, they were really incredible and supportive the whole time. That's that's amazing. The, the version that I've got is a, is a PDF of it, so I haven't actually seen the hard copy. I've got it on order. It's coming in. But, um, it's on the way. Right, but even even looking at the PDF, you can tell the care that's going into it. Like You, you can tell what Gordon Press puts into a publication. Because like, everything from like, yeah. just the... I'm, I'm, I'm imagining the typeface on the page and sort of the inset a little bit, so it's just kind of tactile. 
and that cover is, is absolutely gorgeous. And then that image that keeps going throughout the book is the header for the type for each section. It's just the care that's gone into it is really phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm really so thankful for them. And the um, Roxana Bennett um, published um, a poetry collection in their first season, and she just won the Trillium Book Award um, for that, which is very exciting. So they're they're doing really neat things. They've got um, really neat people that they're investing in, um, investing their time and resources. So yeah, I'm really really thankful to be a part of that that publishing house. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, going back to because you play with like folk tales and fairy tales, and you mentioned that a little bit. How do you blend those together? Like you've got you've got poems that draw from from historical nonfiction, and then you incorporate elements of fairy tale. Talk about that a little bit, because that's really fascinating. Yeah. So I think with that, part of my process is just kind of looking at storytelling in general and looking at, like, if you're reading a nonfiction piece um, about an event, there's still elements of mythology in there, and there's still elements of fiction, and there's bits and little gems in there that you can amplify. Um, and the opposite, too, is that folklore, folklore and fairy tales are entirely rooted in the human experience. Um, so it's kind of, even if they're totally separate genres, there's a lot of crossover between the two. And for me, I just find it fascinating. I've always loved fairy tales. Um, ever since I was a kid, they've been my favorite thing to read. Um, and I just find it really fascinating and really fun to kind of take a character um, and to see what I can do with it. Um, to maybe take like a wicked stepmother figure for example, or something, and just kind of change the narrative and change the trope a little bit. Um, and what I really love doing, um, like the poem that I read, um, The Girls Reading in Red Coats, that one for me is kind of that combination of fact and fiction, because um, it's based off of that real kind of true crime case, but then you kind of add the little Red Riding Hood elements to it, because um, mm -hmm. they're all there. They were already, I didn't come up with that connection. They were already in everything about that story. Um, you just kind of tap into it. Um, and I guess that's important too, is I don't claim to own any of these stories that I'm writing about in here. It's kind of taking narratives that have been passed down from generation to generation and historical personages as well, um, and kind of seeing what they might have been like. Um, and I, I first, just for example, with the Bridget Cleary poem, um, I first heard about her in um, Ireland when I was there in 2016 on a trip. And whenever anyone spoke about her, they always spoke more about Michael Cleary, her husband. And I always thought it would be so much more interesting to hear more about Bridget. Um, and people have done that. There are books written about Bridget Cleary, um, but I couldn't find any poems about her. <laughs> so I figured it was time to write one um, and just kind of see which stories I can tell in a slightly different way and put a different bend on them. Right. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So um, what are you working on now? Which is like the most unfair question anybody can ask a writer, right? But what are you working on now? Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm working on a few things right now. Good. Um, so I'm, I'm working on my master's thesis, which is um, a novel. It's my first full-length novel that I'm working on. Um, so that's a little bit intimidating. Um, and ironically, and it's funny because I decided all of this way before COVID, but it's a novel about a pandemic, um, which I've been planning for about two and a half years or so. I didn't plan to be writing it during a pandemic. That wasn't part of my intentions. <laughs> um, 
So this has been an interesting experience to work on pandemic fiction during a pandemic. Um, so I've got that on the go. I want to start thinking about putting together a second poetry collection. Um, I don't entirely know what I want that to look like yet. And I think I need to do some figuring out before I start trying to cram poems together and, and make it into a full length. Um, and maybe that means I need to write some more chat books in between and take some time and work on some smaller projects. Um, I'm also working on edits right now. Um, I have a novella that's coming out with the University of Calgary Press um, in spring 2021. Um, so I'm working on edits for that right now um, and kind of getting that ready. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Still, it's nowhere near ready. Um, but that's kind of exciting to have two big different projects on the go right now that I can dive into. Um, one of them, which is pandemic based and frankly, not that much fun right now. And the other one has nothing to do with the pandemic. Um, it's just really nice kind of breath of fresh air to work on that. Yeah, so, a little bit of balance then, yeah. Yeah, and I'm trying to balance out my pandemic reading that I have to do with like Jane Austen. <laughs> like, <laughs> reread Pride and Prejudice and have right. some levity and watch historical dramas and stuff. And yeah, I'm trying not to just drown myself in, in pandemic literature because it's, it's a little heavy to be yeah. reading it right now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm gonna look at the uh, the comments here and see if there's any questions for you. Uh, was the editing process more about ordering and sectioning the poems or did your editing include the actual word choices and phrasing? Mm, okay, that's a really good question. Um, so it was a little bit of both. Predominantly with the collection, it was the ordering of poems. Um, I suppose the two things that were the biggest was it was the ordering of poems and then continuity within the pieces themselves. Um, so we didn't work too much with word choice or with spacing really, um, but it was mostly like, um, do, we, do I capitalize the same letters in every poem? And my title is capitalized and I use a period after the stanza at the beginning of the poem and then halfway through I switch it to no periods or commas or something. Um, so the proofreading process um, was pretty intense on that one. And it was very specific little line by line edits like that. Um, but that's also super valuable because I ended up with a collection that um, I haven't found a typo in it yet. <laughs> and that was my biggest nightmare is I would pick it up and take it out of the box and find a big fat typo on the first page I looked at. Uh, and I haven't found one yet. So, and it, that's not my doing, that is Gordon Hillpress's doing. Um, so yeah, we didn't work too much on the actual construction of the poems themselves. They were quite content with how they looked. That being said, and I was chatting with Ellen about this before, um, and I think this may have been, maybe I'm a little greedy on my part, but I kept swapping poems out. I would have a poem that was older and then I'd write a new one and say, oh, this one has to be in the collection. I like this one better. Um, so I'd say, okay, we'll cut this one and put this one in. Um, and then there was a point where they just had to say, okay, this is the last one. You can't have any more substitutions, um, which completely makes sense. There was a point where it's like, we have to print it. You have to stop changing things. Um, so that was kind of my part in that, which wasn't super helpful because then it had to get proofread again. Um, but I, I swapped a lot of poems out because I had new things once I knew what the collection looked like and kind of the thematic um, through thread that I hadn't seen before. I could write things with that in mind. Um, right. But yeah, they were very patient with me, <laughs> which is really nice. <laughs> uh, let's see, there's another question here. Um, your work is about the pride and pain of being a woman. How are we doing in the battle to feel more pride than pain? Hmm. Interesting question. Interesting. OK, 
okay. I'm trying to think of how to answer that. That's I do okay. think, yeah, a lot of the collection is very based. Um, when I talk about it, I always kind of say it's the intersections of folklore and femininity. Um, and something that I look at a lot in the collection and in a lot of my writing is this idea of the monstrous feminine. Um, so this femininity that isn't kind of typical, soft, delicate, pastel feminine, it's femininity that's a bit darker, um, more kind of Medusa-like, I suppose. Um, so I think that's mostly what I wanted to do with my collection was kind of take, kind of like I said before, the wicked stepmother idea, um, but take this monstrous femininity and combine it with all these historical narratives. And so that there's some beauty in the monstrous as well. So as to how we're doing with kind of showing the pride and pain, I think there's a lot of writers that are working on this right now. And that's part of what happened here too, is I got to read a lot of different poetry collections that kind of played with this um, and different writers and different people that are taking up fairy tales. Um, like Helen Oyeyemi comes to mind. Um, she's not a poet, she's a fiction writer, um, but a lot of her novels kind of take a trope and then change it. And it's specifically about the pride and pain of being a woman and in those books of being a woman of color. Um, and she's incredibly successful in what she's writing and how she's writing it. So I don't know, I think I'm, I'm slowly maybe starting to get there. I think there's a lot more that I can write and a lot more that I can look at and probably a lot of blind spots within this discussion that I had in the book um, that I can pick up in later works. Um, but yeah, so maybe the answer to that is we're getting there slowly, huh. but yeah. the other, other writers are working on it and there's some really interesting writing that's coming out there. Right. Um, had, had you written most of the poems in the book on their own and then found good places for all of them or were you writing stuff in different styles and themes for each section? I think you, yeah, you sort of answered that, but um, were you writing stuff in different styles and themes for each section? That's interesting. Mm. Because I think that sort of develops because each, each section has its own voice. Yeah. I guess what I would say to that is that like I didn't have the sections in mind when I was writing the poems. Yeah. Um, what happened predominantly with the collection was I had a whole bunch of poems that I'd written and then I kind of figured out what fit best together and made a collection from there. Um, but like I said before, with making substitutions and <laughs> sending them poem after poem of poems that I wanted to include instead, um, was that I did some of that after the sections were um, implemented. So I did kind of know after a while which poems were going to go where. Um, so for example, um, the second section of the book is called Beast Theory, um, and it's all poems about um, animals and animal experiences. Um, so one of the last poems that I, this is the one where they said you have to stop, which is totally fair. Um, and this is a poem about Mary Toft. Um, who was also Irish, and in the 1800s, um, she tricked a bunch of journalists and doctors into thinking she was giving birth to rabbits. Um, she's also known as the queen of the rabbits, um, but I ended up writing this poem um, and structuring it. Um, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it like rabbit ears um, wow. or like a woman's legs that are in stirrups. Um, yes. I've been told you can read it both ways. Um, so that was one that came together after I knew what that section was going to be like. Um, um. And it just and, and for poems like that, those were ones where it was like this has to be in this section. I know that it does, um, but the majority of them were written beforehand, um, and then 
we sectioned them out in a way that made sense thematically. Um, and like you said earlier, Ellen, with that like narrative arc throughout each section and throughout the collection as a whole, um, most of those were already written beforehand. Wow. Well, this has, been, this has been fascinating. It's so great to talk to you. Um, just before, we've only got a couple of minutes. So I know there's a there's a little bit of, um, you need to tell people where they can find you on your social media, and you are offering copies of your book to people who donate to Black Lives Matter. So you could just take a minute and yes. talk about that. Um, so my social media handle um, for Instagram and Twitter, and I, um, that's a really easy way to get in touch with me. Um, it's A-M-Y-L-I-A underscore L-E-B-L-A-N-C. Um, and that is for both Instagram um, and Twitter. I'm also on Facebook. If you want to add me there, um, I try to post a lot of writing things um, and calls for submissions and everything. Um, and then the other thing that Ellen mentioned is I have um, 10 copies of my book that I will send out to people that make um, a donation to a Black Lives Matter organization, whether that's in Canada or elsewhere. Um, if you make a donation and send me a receipt, I will send you a book. Um, and I can do that for 10 people. So I will put that out there on social media when all 10 copies are spoken for. Um, but there's really critical work that needs to be done right now and these organizations are doing that work. Um, so the least that we as white creators can do is to help kind of support that work and make sure that they're getting the donations that they need. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have to say. That's fantastic. Thank you for that, Amy. And thank you for this conversation. It was wonderful speaking with you, talking with you about this book. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. And anybody that's listening, get a copy of the book and read it. And you'll see what I mean. Read it more than once. You'll want to because you'll get something new out of it every time you read it. Um, as I mentioned before, thank you to the Rosé Foundation for the funding for this series. Um, our next one is going to be on June 30th. And WGA Treasurer Susan Carpenter is going to be talking to Doreen Vanderstoop about her dystopian novel, Watershed. So um, join us again on the uh, same time on our YouTube channel. We'll find a link and post that when we can. And uh, we'll see you all on the 30th. Thank you again, Amy. Okay, so thank, thank you me. so much for having me. And thank you for the wonderful conversation. It's been really fun. It's been great. I've been looking forward to talking yeah. about this book. So I'm glad we did. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, it's so exciting to talk to somebody else about it because I, I have it all in my head. But <laughs> it's really nice to, to talk to somebody else. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Thank you.